0: This is OnScript, bringing you conversations about current scholarship on scripture. We're your hosts, Matt and Matt. Thanks for listening. Welcome to the 10th ever episode of the OnScript podcast, here today with Dr. Brennan Breed of Columbia Theological Seminary in Decatur, Georgia and author of Nomadic Text, A Theory of Biblical Reception History, published by Indiana University Press. Brennan, thanks for joining OnScript. Thank you for having me, Matt. I'm very grateful to be here. Brennan, 2014 was quite a publishing year for you. You had... uh was that the year you published your Old Testament Library commentary uh, with Carol Newsom on Daniel?
1: Yes, uh, and in fact, it, it's it's Carol Newsom's Daniel Old Testament Library commentary <laughs> with me uh, to be to be specific. But yes, <laughs> sure. uh, uh, yeah. But it, it just it's just the you know the vagaries of publishing that things work out. Um, you know, that kind of coming out at the same time, even though I worked in them at different different times. But yeah, they kind of all ended up coming out at once.
0: Yeah. Well, congrats on both publications. And while the main focus is on nomadic text in this interview, it would be nice to hear what you consider some of the more significant contributions of this recent Daniel commentary.
1: Thanks. So, uh, yeah, the Daniel commentary, I mean, uh, so Carol Newsom is amazing. Uh, and she was my, uh, my Dr. mutter. Um, so I, I love her and, uh, um, am excited to, uh, to see whatever she publishes. Um, and her work on Daniel is great. Uh, there's some very cool, uh, historical work there, especially, uh, some of her work on, uh, Daniel seven and how it fits into the, um, the overall uh, progression of the book, uh, and some of the redaction theories that she's, uh, uh working with there. Um, Some of her uh, thought about the Hellenistic world and so on and how it relates to to Daniel um, is very exciting and and, and excellent. Uh, My my work is to add a little bit of reception history to the end of each chapter um, or each section of the book uh, and just explore some of the things that the text has done um, since – of, since it, since people have understood it to be kind of outside of the realm of biblical scholars, what's it done? Um, so starting with the Hellenistic world and moving on. Um, and that was really exciting and really fun. I'm just very grateful for, uh, that, that, that Carol asked me to be a part of that project.
0: Hmm. One of the questions I had uh, was whether or not you and Carol agree on the same date for the end of the world.
1: Ah uh, yes yes right um we just follow Harold camping uh, as he moves up in time uh, every day that he continues to propose no I'm just kidding yeah uh, uh, I think I, I think the the, the final quote uh, the final actually words of the book uh, uh, the commentary on Daniel are um, from the Raelians, uh a group of UFO uh, extraordinaire folks uh, who uh, somehow believe that the Book of Daniel helps them understand um, how space aliens are talking to us about the future and uh, um, as they say the moment is now um, so yeah we're waiting any day now Carol and I.
0: Okay, so um, but in the meantime, uh, as you're waiting, uh, right, you'll right. be you'll be making a trip to Germany. Is that right to receive the uh, Manfred Lautenschläger Award for theological promise?
1: Yeah, yeah, I was uh, very pleased to be uh, um, uh, to receive that award, and I'm so happy that it'll be in Heidelberg. I've never been, so I'm excited to see it, and um, yeah, that'll that'll be a really fun time. There's some uh, some folks that I know from a long time ago who um, who will be there as well from other uh, other disciplines and other uh, uh, from other schools. So that will be really exciting.
0: Great, and uh, will the award be conferred by Angela Merkel or
1: uh, no? I- I don't think so. Yeah, I think okay. uh, I, I think she won't be in attendance. Um, uh, I think maybe uh, maybe the George W. Bush's back rub uh, put her off from <laughs> meeting with Americans <laughs> for the New City, I think so.
0: Okay, all right. See. She'll be watching on TV. Um, well, okay. that's an, a great honor and well deserved. So, congrats on that as well. So, thank you very much. So, uh, Brenning, your book aims to make a contribution to the field of reception history, and perhaps perhaps I was late to the game because I was only aware of reception history. As a field of study when I came to Emory in two thousand and seven, uh, but it seemed like you were already hot on the trail at that point. Um, could you maybe explain uh, that field to those who might not know it and explain why you think why it 's arisen to more prominence in rec- recently in biblical studies?
1: Yeah, that's a great question. And yeah, um, it's something that, uh, I mean, I, I was unaware of it um, until I was uh, well into my uh, Master Divinity program, my MDiv program. Um, and I mean, basically the, the general historical flow of critical biblical, biblical scholarship, um, as people well know, is that, uh, you know, there's uh, a trend sort of post-Enlightenment uh, or post-Renaissance trend uh, towards trying to situate uh, texts in historical context in, when, in which they were produced um, to understand them uh, in, a, in a better, more clear way. Uh, this comes out of basically philology and so on, archaeology, some other disciplines that emerged at that time. And uh, so critical biblical scholarship generally tries to understand the ancient period and how the text functioned and was, was produced um, in the ancient period. Uh, so uh, biblical scholars had for a long time kind of thought about the history of interpretation. Uh, that is, what did uh, yeah, professional sort of biblical scholars uh, from Christian and Jewish traditions, um, what did they think? I mean, what did Rashi think? What did Augustine think? about a text and that and you know for centuries people have been interested in in those kinds of questions um generally to figure out where something came from that was important uh in the in sort of contemporary uh uh, life of religious communities but in the last century really um there's been a a, at first a division between uh sort of thinking about history of interpretation and then also all these other uses of biblical texts like what do artists do with biblical texts or what do politicians do with them uh or uh, what do we say about the the, the the way biblical texts were used in the history of science, um, in the uh, the history of medicine, um, and things like this? Uh, so there's um, there were a lot of biblical scholars who started to dabble kind of in art history um, or in poetry and things like this. Um, and that's basically where reception history came from, uh, thinking more broadly about the history of interpretation or how a text is used um, uh, than just professional biblical interpreters. Um, so this kind of research, I think... Uh, started to push some of the boundaries of traditional biblical scholarship when people started to ask more questions about what's the difference between uh, a a poem um, and, say... Ephraim, uh, St. Ephraim's uh, uh, interpretation of the book of Genesis, which was written in uh, in terms of poetry. Um, so in any event, uh, uh, some of those boundaries begin uh, to fall down, uh, and reception history began to kind of take over what was understood as history of interpretation. Um, There's still some lines drawn in the discipline between those two, but generally reception history is understood to mean kind of anything that happened with the biblical text after the period uh, of its production. Um, so in any event, when I was in my Master Divinity program, uh, Chun-Liang Seo was one of my professors at uh, Princeton Seminary, and um, he was a, a wonderful lecturer and teacher and very captivating, and he was working on the book of Job at this point, uh, which uh, he's now produced the first volume of his commentary on Job, which has a huge section on reception history, and he's really become an expert on music and, and art uh, and rabbinic interpretation, uh, um, so m- many different kind of avenues of, of research that he's um, added to, uh, to his own repertoire, and while I was in his class on Job, um, he pushed us all, all students had to had to do a reception history project uh, at one point in the semester. And uh, uh, so that was really a fun project for me, but also um, uh, encouraged me to look at the biblical text uh, as something uh, beyond just its period of origin uh, within uh, biblical scholarship. Um, so that was a really exciting and interesting thing for me. I got interested in art history classes when I was in undergrad, and all of a sudden it became interesting. Uh, a, sort of a, a good thing for me to ask questions about art history as it relates to to the biblical text uh, within biblical studies, which was a new a new thing for me uh, at that point in time. So um, I got really excited about the the intersection of all these different disciplines um, in biblical studies, and began to apply to PhD programs and. Uh, 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 Chun Liang Seo, uh, my advisor, as I said, um, it, it, he encouraged me to apply um, to Emory and other schools thinking about interdisciplinary work. And Emory was just fascinating uh, in terms of the scholars that they had, but also how, how well they had set up a, a truly interdisciplinary program. So I was able to work in art history and uh, work in comparative literature and philosophy and lots of other areas and disciplines. and the professors in those areas were really very kind and welcoming, and uh, spent a lot of time working with me. So that was that was excellent. And Carol Newsom, as an advisor, is incredible and a wonderful person, but also um, uh, very interested in trying to push the boundaries of these kinds of projects. So that's how how I got into it personally, um, but also uh, that's that led me to begin asking questions about reception history itself.
0: Yeah. So one of the things that co- really comes out in your book is that you are wanting. Um, scholars to see reception history not just as a kind of subfield of biblical studies. uh, But in fact, the argument is that biblical studies is reception history all the way down. Um, So how, first of all, how is it that reception history is typically seen? And then what's your response to that in your book?
1: I think a lot of biblical scholars got into reception history stuff because they were, you know, interested in uh, art and literature and music. And they knew that the Bible uh, was read by musicians and artists and so on in quite interesting ways, not ways that intersect with critical, critical biblical scholarship very much, but um, but in any event, so, uh, or, you know, some more than others, but, uh, so this was uh, understood to be kind of a fun thing to do or a thing to do on the side, or maybe you stick it in the corner of a, uh, of a work that you're doing, uh, uh, some sort of article or maybe, uh, you know, stick it on the corner of a commentary somewhere. Um, and, uh, this kind of attitude that, that it was, it was a fun thing to do on the side, um, was, I mean, that's pretty much how I started to encounter it. Um, uh, and when I started to work with it more, um, and, uh. Uh, Professor Sao and Professor Newsom uh, both pushed me to think uh, harder about the the very nature of reception history. Um, so the way I got to that was I started thinking, okay, if I'm going to do reception history, if I'm going to do a project on reception history, um, then I have to know where the biblical text ends. You know, where, where, where do I start working? And in general, uh, biblical scholars will start reception history works by uh, saying, okay, I'm going to start with the Greco-Roman era or something. Or I'm going to start with like uh, the period – Starting around the year 150-something CE, um, you know, the period after the sort of fixing of the biblical text or something like that. Um, and I started to get into those questions merely to to figure out where to start. Um, and it was then that I realized that this is a really murky uh, thing. Like, where does the biblical text's original period end or when's the production of it end or what is the actual text of it so if you're going to know where to start from what's the real original text then and uh as people who are interested in textual criticism know um this is a, a really contentious topic and one that uh, there is no consensus on this within the field um it looks like there is a consensus when you stand outside of it sometimes and you you read kind of overviews of textual criticism well there's an original biblical text a four laga or there's some sort of you know uh final version of the text, um, uh, and even, uh, so there's different understandings of that, of course.
0: Yeah, and you talk in your book about this, this idea of a a period of stability where the text becomes stable and then you could talk about the reception of that text.
1: Yeah. Yeah. So like, uh, I mean, there's, and there's different ways of that people talk about this uh, or like a period of uh, sort of uh, the ending of, of different types of pluriformity. So Eugene Ulrich, who's a fantastic biblical scholar, great textual critic and uh, uh, has uh, produced the idea of pluriformity, this idea that, uh, uh, basically, in um, the Second Temple period, there was this uh, understanding uh, that the text was had multiple forms, and that was not a problem. It wasn't uh, it didn't upset people. So the Dead Sea Scrolls they have multiple versions of biblical texts uh, that are you know stored next to each other. There's you know not, they're not crossed out or burned. Um, uh, that there's a, uh, an acceptance that the text will appear in multiple forms, uh, you know, so non identical forms um and that this doesn't seem to be uh troublesome after um a certain period of time so after the great divide is what uh, uh several scholars have have called this period but so this uh, kind of period of a, of a great divide uh, somewhere around 130 something uh, CE uh, after uh, uh the redestruction of Jerusalem and and the um expulsion of Jews after the Simon bar Kokhba revolt um that there's uh, uh, a kind of shutting down of the biblical text that, it, that, that there's only, it's a, and as Eugene Ulrich says, that there's this loss of pluriformity. All of a sudden, it, there's just one right biblical text. We've lost this idea of pluriformity. And the thing that I walked away with was said, well, you know, the text is still pluriform. There's still different versions of the ancient biblical text. Um different religious communities changed their own ideas about what happened or what the text was. But that doesn't mean that the text itself changed. Um, So in other other words, if you have two different versions of the book of Daniel, uh, right? basically the Theodosian version that ends up in the Christian Septuagint, and you have... uh, sort of the, the Masoretic version, uh, the proto-Masoretic version, the version that becomes the basically the, the rabbinical Jewish text. Uh, uh, so these two versions uh, eventuate in different forms. They're still in different forms even today. Uh, Eastern Orthodox Christians use a different version of Daniel than uh, Jews and Protestant Christians use. And so uh, the text is remains. So so I started to think, boy, um, if you're going to start with this period of kind of originality, this is already um, difficult. And then you get even more into say, use the book of Daniel as an example. You start to dig down more into it and there is no original form of the book of Daniel. Uh, the book of Daniel uh, uh, was already in different forms before it was completed. Uh, so chapters 4 to 6 of the book of Daniel seem to uh, sort of, the, whatever the original form of, that, of those chapters were is, is gone. Uh, the, the different versions that we have in the ancient period all presume a now lost uh, sort of original, if you were, um, which uh, uh, is not represented in any of the extant forms that became the book of Daniel. So in other words, by the time you have a book of Daniel, you've already got different versions. Um, The original is not the book of Daniel because it's only three chapters that seem to be in different forms. So in any event, uh, uh, when you start to kind of push these questions of where do things actually start, where's the origin, uh, where would I start reception history, um, things can become much more slippery. And then you start to realize, boy, um, there's no point at which this biblical text um, becomes complete in a way that is universally applicable, right? So it becomes complete for different religious communities at um, particular times, but there's no way in which it becomes complete for, say, critical biblical scholars who are uh, trying to think beyond uh, the boundaries of any particular religious confession. Um, so, what, you know, me as a biblical scholar, um, I look at this at the book of Daniel and I have to say, um, if I want to do text criticism about this, I have to admit that there's no beginning to it exactly, and there's no end to it exactly, too. So, Instead of thinking that there's an original text that's a rock kind of solid core uh, to this tradition that emerges around it, and that tradition is reception history, and I'll study that, or I'll study this original core and be a critical sort of traditional biblical scholar. Um, instead, I have to think, wow, this, this whole thing is tradition. In a way, this is a textual tradition, or it's actually several now different textual traditions that are all part of one textual network. Um, so I have to think in terms that the, the book of Daniel is not this thing that is then read and used in lots of different contexts. Instead, the book of Daniel is itself a process. Um, It itself is is a tradition that is a network of texts. Um, So in any event, thinking about reception history like that, then um, pretty much everything that we do as biblical scholars is, you know, redaction, in other words, looking at how biblical texts get edited over time or get, uh, you know, sort of woven together different textual traditions, that's a work of reception. People are drawing from earlier materials and updating them.
0: So does, the, um, so does your research in uh, reception history then problematize the idea of a final form of the text? Because yeah, that's often the, the, the claim used by biblical scholars when they don't want to do redaction history. They're going to say, well, you know, I'm going to look at the final form of the text—
1: yeah. This is this is a, a one thing that I got really I mean I, I was I, when I started thinking about reception history I thought well I'll just start with final form um because that's what like say Brevard Childs does in his Exodus commentary and so on you know, start with the final form then you move on and so on. Um the 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 problem with that is um that there's lots of different sort of final forms and they're never actually quite final. Um, so you look at, say, um, the Masoretic text, right? The, f- we, what many biblical scholars would say is sort of the final form of, say, the book of Daniel, right? Uh, you've got this final form of the book. Um, well, you know, that's the Masoretic, that's, that's a, a me- medieval text, right? I mean, sometime around, you know, the year 900 to 1000 and so on, you know, Leningrad Codex, right about the year 1000 CE. Um, and that's the final form of Daniel, but it also has vowels, which are added later, Which are said to preserve in much older uh, sort of vocalization of the text, but... In the same way we, we don 't know what the ancient vocalization was uh, there's all sorts of uh, other stuff added like Khtif Kure is added to the sides and margins of the text there's uh, sort of Masoretic uh, uh, markings and accents um, there's uh, sort of rabbinic uh, uh, masorah there's stuff added to the sides and, and you know sort of uh, footnotes you know to the book uh, so there's all sorts of stuff that's that's, a, that's a created and uh, that's a part of the tradition of the text um, that's that's not um, just kind of accidental. Um, that becomes a part of what it means to read the book of Daniel in a particular community. Um, uh, so when, then we start talking about proto-Masoretic text. Okay, well, you we don't want that. We want the final form whatever was around in 132 or something CE. Um, well, the problem with that is that there were already f- multiple forms of the book of Daniel at 132 CE. And we know this, uh, The even the Talmud talks about how there were People who worked as scribes in the temple courts with multiple texts. We read about the, the sort of different pentateuchal texts of Rabbi Meyer. You know, there's there's all sorts of records of there being different texts. And the Dead Sea Scrolls show us that there are actually multiple textual traditions that are preserved in one religious community. Um, we, we wouldn't think that the temple courts are any different. So uh, there's no location which is universally um, uh, able to make decisions about what the text, what the original text is, or something like that, for, for or the final form of the text is. And so when I started thinking more about this, I realized it's kind of like a um, it's kind of like an illusion a bit. Um, so uh, uh, we we've got this idea in biblical studies that there was this period of the production of the text and then that moves into a period of transmission and there's this moment of transition where all of a sudden the the redactors or editors or authors of biblical texts suddenly, are supposed to stop kind of adding stuff to it. And there's, they're supposed to just preserve. Um, I don't know that they all got the memo because some of them kept adding stuff. we, we got marginal comments in biblical texts that end up being incorporated into the text. We have Katif Kare issues. We have so frame right? So notes, basically the scribes are telling you how to read the text or changing the text in some ways. Um, so some of these things that we see, you know, like they, the, those those scribes, uh, you know, didn't get the memo. Um, the problem is uh, with this thought, like you know, cop- uh, uh, the production turns into copying, uh, turns into transmission. Um, scribes turn into copyists. Um, uh, you know, sort of uh, uh, plural form textual traditions turn into uh, singular textual traditions with a hierarchy. You know, if, if you get it wrong, it's an error. So additions turn into errors. Uh, so they, they make it this idea that we have to like cut out all the parts of the biblical text that don't occur, say, in Hebrew as a base, right? So, like, Susanna and the elders has to go out of Daniel because it's, it's not original. But then you come to the point and say, well, Daniel 7 to 12 is definitely not original in the sense that it wasn't written at the same time as Daniel 1 to 6. And, in fact, Daniel 1 probably wasn't written at the same time as 2 to 6. And, in fact, lots of parts of 2, chapter 2, aren't original. And then chapters 4 to 6 is the original part, but we've lost... The only part of four to six that was actually the original part, right? Uh, we all we have are kind of the stuff that was built or, or, or uh, uh, built out of those original now lost. Uh, it all stories. goes back to Babylon, right? Exactly. So, so there's uh, you know, and and you know, the the character of Daniel is uh, you know uh, probably built off of several other characters, uh, maybe even hearkening back to uh, Ugaritic mythology. So you know, you you have this problem like of infinite regression, um, and so if you're looking for a rock stable original uh, basis, the only way to get that is through theology, um, which I don't want to say that uh, people shouldn't. Think about theology when they do biblical studies, but that is to say, if we're working within theological premises, we should we should claim that. Um, so if we if we want to, if biblical scholars want to say, look, there's an original text and it's the MT, um, we should just go ahead and say, look, that's that's a religious commitment. That's why uh, I have this commitment um, because I'm part of a, a Christian or Jewish community or a part of some other religious community that that, that holds this as sacred. Um, and, you know, I think the, the more we kind of admit these kinds of uh, uh, investments that we have in our biblical scholarship, the easier it will be for other people to dialogue with us about them because right now we've built this kind of strange uh, – you know, illusion of the moment of the original text um, and the finality of it or something. Um, It's the original and it's the final. Isn't that strange? Um, So like we built this kind of a non nonsensical um, uh, kind of imaginary beast um, that has fuzzy edges precisely because it allows us to fudge some of our uh, theological investments. And it allows for what people think, I think is a space of safe dialogue between different religious communities, which I think has been necessary in the past. Um, I think right now though, uh, I, I think those kinds of like uh, kind of wink wink you know nudge nudge like you know uh, it's an original text but don't push me too hard on that because then I'll have to say I'm a Christian or I'm a Jew and that's why I believe that the MT is, is the better one or the best one or whatever um, I think we're past those times we, we, we need to just start saying hey this is why I, I, I come at the text this way or this is why I'm, my conclusions my study are that we should read the MT um, so in any event uh, uh, I think those, those will lead to better dialogue that's just my personal uh, understanding though
0: Yeah, do do you think that your nomadic approach? I mean, we'll talk about it in a minute. But since we're on the topic, do you think your nomadic approach allows for a neutral space for dialogue, or that it too requires a kind of owning up of commitments?
1: This is my this is my own personal point of view. Uh, I mean, I just think that there is no neutral space. There is no real neutral space for dialogue. Um, What we have are sort of real spaces, which are formed by particular investments of. time and money and effort and power, political power, um, you know, social power, uh, I mean, uh, uh, religious and theological power. I mean, we just have to own up to the fact that our spaces that we have are formed by theological projects, right? I mean, this is a big part of the history of biblical studies. That's why some of these conversations, um, like we pretend like it's There's there's no investments of theology in it. Uh, There actually are. And if we're honest about it, I think it'd be easier to parse them out and to try to make sure that we can um, put people on an equal playing field or at least try. Um, But the other thing, too, is, I mean, of course, our spaces of scholarship are not free, open spaces of dialogue. They're formed by racial um, history, right? The racial hierarchies of uh, Europe and the United States they're formed by money and uh class interests right i mean education higher education has always been a, a something available to the higher classes uh uh and landed classes and so on um it's been a sort of uh to use a gender specific term for, for because it was, uh, you know, a gentleman's game, um, right, higher education. So uh, the more we own up to our own investments, our own backgrounds, our own histories, um, uh, the, the, the reasons we're doing the work we do, um, I think the more we'll be able to – and more the more we engage in open dialogue and try to ask who's not here, why are these voices not being represented, why um, – uh, uh, or is the way that I'm talking and, and asking people, <laughs> is the way that I'm talking about this excluding people uh, or, you know, and not to say that we can't have – I think that people think that um, – uh, if you If you allow religious dialogue or allow religious convictions to come into biblical scholarship it 'll drive people away uh, or it 'll create unsafe spaces. I think we need to do both. Uh, I think we need to um, uh, force people or 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 maybe not force, but we need to uh, encourage people to be open about their their commitments and why they do this kind of work, but also we need to all um, try to make sure that none of those commitments are um, creating uh, uh, sort of Power structures um, that are keeping other people out, other voices out. Uh, so that that's my own personal view. I know that there's people who disagree about this and so on, but um, but I, I think this part of this comes from my convictions about reception history. That uh, what what I'm doing is looking at other communities who've been basically shut out um, of critical biblical scholarship or called lesser, or say um, you know the Ethiopian uh, uh, textual tradition, which is really rich and interesting, but also is you know called the daughter version. You know, I mean, it's it's uh, it uses this gendered, uh, really you know kind of term, you know, it's a daughter version because it's not that important because it's derivative of the Greek. Um, You're not going to learn much from it, you know, if you read the daughter versions, you know, like the Armenian and the Coptic. You know, know, these these kind of uh, uh, pejorative terms for these communities that have really rich and really interesting uh, uh, traditions of interpretation, but also of Forms of the Bible. I mean, there these versions of the Bible are are real and are not lesser uh, just because they came about later or something. I mean, it's a really strange way to organize. So one of the things I'm trying to point out um, in this book, but also in all of my work, is that we we have hierarchies. We organize ourselves hierarchically all the time. And trying to get, I mean, in terms of text criticism, there's the original text, and there's all the kind of derivative stuff that comes about after that, and usually the original text is kind of empty, uh, and then all the other versions kind of get lined up as lesser versions of that. So if a scholar that works in Septuagint is doing kind of lesser work on a lesser text, I mean, so just getting us to be honest about some of those, but also to ask, uh, should we have it that way? Um, So in our textual criticism, in our uh, kind of traditional uh, tree of of, uh, biblical methods, you know, so... Redaction critics are awesome and reception historians are kind of on the low end of the totem pole a lot of the time right so just getting us to ask about our um, our uh, the way we arrange things because those are hidden a lot of the time.
0: Brennan, the uh, the title of your book is uh, Nomadic Text, A Theory of Biblical Reception History. And I'm just wondering if you could explain briefly what it is you're trying to convey with that title, Nomadic
1: Text. Yeah, yeah. Um, So uh, what I I mean, basically, as I said, this project uh, starts as an inquiry into um, reception history. And I wanted to just do an easy study of... When I say easy. I mean, I just wanted to. I just want to study, you know, a little snippet of the Book of Job and look at what it did. And then why can't also, we just read the Bible, <laughs> right? Exactly, exactly. So I start with this kind of what I thought was an easy project, and all of a sudden, chapter one of that was kind of talking about reception history, right? You know, as most dissertations are, right? So I'll start by just exploring the concept of reception history and lay out some theories, and then I'll go with one of them. And I started to think more and more about this, and then chapter one became almost the whole book uh, because I realized that we hadn't really thought through some of the foundational assumptions of reception history very well, but then all thinking about that led me into thinking about biblical studies as a whole. Um, so part of the idea of nomadic text and the, the whole kind of the, the metaphor of, of nomadic text um, is it, when we think about biblical text, biblical scholars generally approach it with the idea that this text has gotten out of some kind of uh, original historical container, and our job is to put it back there. Uh, that's where it belongs. So I use the metaphor in the book as well.
0: And I love your image there of biblical scholars as zookeepers.
1: Yeah, so in the book, yeah, that idea that we're zoo, biblical scholars are zookeepers, uh, That that the texts that we study are – like t- a tiger that has escaped a cage, um, and our job is to put it back in the cage. Um, and this this idea uh, is taken from Jeffrey Bennington, um, a, uh, a scholar of comparative literature at Emory, and in a book of his. He mentions this 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 idea of the, the textual scholars are trying to stuff stuff the text back into their original cage, and that's where they belong. So like a zookeeper would arrange an original habitat, right? Like uh, a tiger belongs somewhere that has access to flowing water and shade and you know savannas to run in or whatever. I don't even I don't know to be honest, but it, it needs a certain kind of food to survive and we've got to recreate that original habitat and then then it'll be happy and and, and good um, and what i push us to think about is that the, these texts um texts aren't like an animal that was designed to function in an original habitat um, texts are actually they were designed uh as a technology to disseminate uh uh human writing i mean you know human language so, in other words, um, we try to stick these texts back in their original context to understand them. But, in fact, the whole point of writing is so that people read texts out of context. You know, that's why I write something down, so that in a later context or outside of my context, someone has access to something that I'm saying. So, uh, it, in other words, reading texts out of context isn't a bug. It's a feature right, of writing as a, as a, as a technology so that led me to start thinking about um you know sort of this idea of reading out of context and so on um but it's themselves uh many of these texts uh there's no kind of origin to them like you think about the, the psalms like these things have been said many times uh when they 're written down, a lot of them it 's not the first time this thing has been said. sometimes they're edited. It seems uh, to make them depersonalized so that they can be used by lots of other people. So a lot of these texts are even designed with the notion that they 're supposed to be on the move uh, they 're supposed to be used by people in different contexts so I, I oppose this idea of like the nomadic text to the idea of uh, different kind of ways of motion so like there 's a a migrant, right? Someone who moves from one locate, one solid location to another solid location. Or, or the refugee, someone who's kind of, you know, kicked out of somewhere and wants to go back. Um, and so uh, we can think of biblical texts either as like uh, the old Christian Stendhal, like, you know, it meant that, but it means this now. Um, or we can think about it as, uh, you know, I'm going to put this thing back in its original context and understand it. Uh, instead, I, I encourage us to see these texts as things that were designed, like machines designed to be on the road. Um, and so when we look at these texts, we can think not what did what was it supposed to mean in the ancient context, or what is it supposed to mean today um right now, uh, but instead we can think, uh how is this thing used? how does it work um so almost like you look at a tool like a uh, uh, you think about um, a, a screwdriver or something, and it can be used in lots of different ways. Uh, there are some ways that it can't be used. A screwdriver can't be used as a, as a rocket ship or something, um, uh, but it can be used in lots of different ways. And so part of how you understand what a screwdriver can do is you look at how people have used it, uh, and people might have ingenious uses for this thing that, that we might not even understand. And so part of that is reception history, is to look at how this text goes out and gets used and works in many different ways. And that I think that helps us understand the structure of texts better when we look at how they get used. Yeah.
0: Yeah. By the way, I could imagine my son using a screwdriver as a rocket ship.
1: <laughs> yes, exactly. In the imagination. Right. Yeah. So there are ways in which you can say someone says this text says this and it it can't, right? Uh, so there are ways in which, um, you know, people use text, uh, we might say, imaginatively, um, in ways where the imagination uh, has nothing to do with the content of the text. Um, so uh, the, and, and, uh, in the book, I, I use a couple of different analogies to say this doesn't mean that any use is great or is good, uh, but it does mean that we have to ask questions about the criteria that we're using to, to uh, distinguish between good and bad uses of text. Um, do we mean that it accounts for the words of the text, it's like a good sort of, in terms of philology, it's a good reading. Uh, you've done a good job accounting for the possibilities or the potentials that uh, that exists in this text, um, you know, in a lexical or grammatical way. Um, so in other words, if you say that, uh, you know, this, this text uh, can be used to do that, um, and you're like, well, it, the, this text doesn't actually even have any, doesn't even mention that. So a lot of texts that people use say to talk about sexuality uh, in a contemporary sense. Um, we're not really sure that those those texts actually say much to our, uh, you know, the, those, those words get used kind of out of context a lot and so on. So in any event, uh, uh, some of those uses we might say are not, um, they're more imaginative than, than, than actual. Um, but but I, that doesn't mean that, that, that there can't be lots of different good uses. Um, and I, I try to call attention in a couple of places uh, in the book where biblical scholars will automatically go to hierarchies. Um, so in other words, if there's three different potential meanings of a text, we have to somehow say like they're arranged. Like there's one, there's the, this is the best meaning. But I try to get us to think like, what do we mean when we say the best meaning? Are you trying to say what was in the author's mind or something that's just really hard to reconstruct? And I don't, I mean, who knows? Um, are we trying to say what was it, what would have been the pref pre- like the most of the original audience or something? Whoever that would have been, um, they would have they would have automatically thought of the, of this meaning first, or are we saying it's the most artistic or theologically profound use of this or most historically accurate use of this? But, you know, there's lots of different criteria we can use to organize or make a hierarchy out of the potential meanings of a, of a word or a phrase or someone. Um, and I'm just trying to get us to think about uh, we, we jump to saying it's the best or the preferred read preferred reading. I mean, that's just a crazy thing to say, right? Preferred by who, why, you know, why do you prefer it? It's like saying, I prefer ice cream uh, over, uh, you know, cake. I mean, you know, it's a personal preference in many ways. Um,
0: <laughs> it's, a- it's like saying ice cream is preferred. Yes, ice cream it's just, is preferred. It's, just, it's, like a, it's a statement of, of fact, right?
1: Right, right, right. So, so, so if you push people to ask about the criteria, these organize um, the hierarchies they're creating between texts or between readings of text or context, like this text belongs in this context, and you can say, well, does it really? I mean, so for example, the, Noah, the story of Noah or something, right? I mean, which context? When you're going to put that text back in its context, which one are you talking about? I mean, it obviously comes from something before the Bible, right? But the the whole thing isn't accounted for there. There's stuff added and changed and whatever, the the character of Noah and so on. Um, but, uh, But also it's, it's definitely drawing from previous precedents and then also also it's in two different forms that were obviously sort of woven together uh, in the biblical text, woven together with Genesis 1, you know, two eleven, and woven together with Genesis, woven together with the Pentateuch, woven together with the Tanakh. So you have this like all, it's like a layer cake of all these different contexts. By the time you've come to what you would call the original context or the final form or something in 132 CE, that text doesn't mean what it meant to anyone, you know, uh, exactly in the, um, uh, say, even Persian period or Something. So, in any event, um, uh, asking questions about this kind of uh, hierarchy of of contexts or uh, meanings and so on um, gets us to come across all kinds of other messy questions, which uh, which I answer very clearly in the book. No, I'm just yeah. uh.
0: Well, I I do think you helpfully steer away from, on the one hand, the the mirage that texts just mean one thing, in which case we have to choose between mutually exclusive options. And, on the other hand, the idea that texts can mean anything, so I think that's where you could be misunderstood, and a critic could say, "Hey, Brennan, you're leaving the door wide open for an anything goes hermeneutic, uh, but you've actually chosen a middle path that that uh, says texts have multiple virtual capacities, and we don't yet know what a text can do, uh, but we we can look at the history of reception and get a sense of its its capacities as a given text moves through space and time. And so that history, uh, that movement through history, shows us what a text can do rather than uh, simply showing us how later communities either approximated or distorted the original meaning. So I can't remember the the name of the philosopher you talked about, but I found it really helpful, uh, that idea of virtual capacities uh, that could be activated in various ways.
1: Yeah, yeah. And so, yeah, the the philosopher who I found really, really helpful, his name is Gilles Deleuze. uh, uh, And I mean, he's sort of, he's not not terribly well known, I don't think outside of a kind of continental philosophy and literary theory and so on. But I found his work to be tremendously helpful, because he tries to think about things in terms of processes. Mm -hmm. Uh, He just has a different way of thinking about identity. So there's this core problem of identity that runs throughout, I think, biblical scholarship, but also throughout much of kind of contemporary thought. and uh, uh, the, 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 the idea of the nomad actually may help me kind of get back to this a bit. Um, so uh, the idea that there's, let's say, um, a person, right, a particular person, me, Brennan Breed. Um, I live my life a certain way. I do certain things every day. But you take me out of my context. You put me in a different context. I'll do different things. I'll act differently. Um, so the question of the core identity of me, like the real me is the me when I'm at home, um, I don't think that's true. I think the real me, uh, is not just what I happen to do every day because I happen to be here at Columbia Theological Seminary in Decatur, Georgia and live on Kirk Road, you know, like all, you know, that, that, that me, um, is, uh, uh is a, a reduction of my possible life, of my potentials. So uh, the thing that Gilles Deleuze points out is that things have a structure. Things can do certain things. They can't do other things. Um, but we tend to look at what things are doing right now and thinking that that's the real state. That's what they're supposed to be doing. And then we think of what they could do as kind of a possibility, right? A less real form of what that thing is. Instead, Deleuze uh, suggests uh, that we should look at things in terms of their potentials and that all their potentials are real. Uh, reality is anything that I can do. Uh, so one of my examples from the book, but I, I, this is this sort of really happened once. So uh, this is you know kind of feels real to me. Um, uh, I was walking along a trail once, and I come upon a sleeping bear. Uh, you know in the woods. I'm on a hike, uh, and I come across, come upon a sleeping bear. And um, uh, this is kind of early spring in uh, in Colorado, and uh, so I start to kind of back up. You know, and like not uh, try to wake or scare, you know, sort of anybody, um, and, uh, you know, the, the, the reality of a sleeping animal that is dangerous to you, right, could, in fact, turn into potential action, it could get you, you know, like, it could hurt you at any moment, so, uh, actually, I don't, uh, to be honest, I don't know if it was sleeping or not, but it was just kind of sitting there, so, in any event, but uh, an animal that's sitting there that's dangerous to you could, at any point, get you, that's a reality, that's a real power Uh, a potential power, not actual power, but it's a potential power that that animal has and that potentiality is real. And you've, you've, you can sense that sometimes. Uh, Deleuze talks about the, 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 the sort of swarm of potentiality. In other words, you can kind of even sense that people are dangerous when you get near them sometimes uh, or they could hurt you uh, uh, even when they're not acting on it, right? Uh, so you can, you can sense this potentiality. And so in thinking about the reality of something, this, te- this biblical text can do something particular in a particular context. So biblical scholars think that we're getting the real truth of a text when we put it in a particular context. Instead, I think, uh, a text is a machine. It's a thing that was built, constructed by people, um, just like a car is constructed by people. It's constructed with words instead of, you know, pieces of metal and, and fabric and so on. But it's a, it's a machine. It does stuff. Some, some, it's technology. It does something particular uh, or lots of particular things. Um, so when we look at this textual machine, uh, of sort of biblical text, say, you know, you know Psalm uh, 3 or something, right? This textual machine can do lots of different things. Uh, if you want to see what it does, the best thing to do is put it in lots of different contexts, Just like if you want to see what I can do, the best thing to do to me is to put me in lots of different contexts and see what I can do. If I never test myself in certain, I mean, I could be the best fencer in the world. I don't know because I never tried it, right? No, that's not true. I actually tried fencing once. Anyway, but I <laughs> probably not. Uh but any of it, uh I could, right? I but I don't know because I never tried it. So in other words, um looking the biblical texts have been around for thousands of years. They've been used in lots of different uh, uh ways. We can look and see what these things have actually done and what they can do. Um and in that way uh we're looking at, at at the at the uh virtual structure of an object. In other words, like what could this thing possibly accomplish? And I think that actually gets us to a closer view of the reality of the text. Um uh, that any particular reading of a text is a reduction of its possibilities. Any uh, particular use of a text, any particular form of a text. Right? You say the MT is the real the real deal, or the TMT, the Tiberian Masoretic Text, or you know uh, the the Leningrad Codex version or whatever is the real version or something. You're reducing the potentials of that text, um, and and we're, we we lose something when we do that. And that's not to say it's wrong to do it. It's just to say that, just to realize that when you give your reading of a text. That's not it. Um, that's a reduction of it, and it being the larger uh, sort of un, uh, uh, unenunciable. You can't you can't put it all in words at the same time. Like you can't just like go through a list of all the things a text could mean or do uh, because there's too many of them. Um, but one thing we can do is try to organize some of these general um, uh, sort of avenues or trajectories or whatever of of use into different kind of categories, try to help give some general shape or form uh, uh, so that people, when they look at a text, they can say, well, it, it tends to do one of these three or four different things, but also to be open to the fact that it could do lots more that we that we don't know yet.
0: So this is where reception history is helpful, then. It enables us to look at and organize those virtual capacities. Uh, that's what you've done in the book with Job 19, 25 to 27, looking at what you call the the survival, justice, mm-hmm. and theophany trajectories that this text took, and all of which are true capacities of the text. It's not like we have to arrange them into a hierarchy and decide uh, which one's best and most original. So, okay, I want to share a story. Um, one, one time back in, well, actually it was back in 1999, I spent a few days with Bedouins, which are, in wow. fact, semi nomadic yeah, you know, we ate ate with them, um, slept in their tents, killed a scorpion and an adder with them, uh, herded sheep, cracked open almonds, and you know did the whole Bedouin thing, I guess. Wow. Um, but at night they brought over a car battery, and with a great sense of pride, they proceeded to hook up a TV to it and show us Arabic news. And there there was this sense that like we were Americans and we couldn't survive a night without news so they were being right, right. A good um, guess yeah. the, you know accommodating hosts and bringing us television so so and here's my tie-in with what we've been talking about you don't know what a nomad can do until you bring them into contact with an American um, but the the whole nomad metaphor raised another question for me and that is that nomads don't just wander they they have a kind of regional home, so even if they're on the move, is that how you also see texts?
1: Yeah, I mean in that, uh, I mean one of the things about uh, nomads is that their their home is on the road. I mean the movement is uh, accepted or understood or uh, presumed right, that, that changing context is going to be, be presumed, but also, yeah, that they, there tend to be kind of networks or circuits, um, places that one tends to go, and I think that's true of biblical text, too, and part of understanding biblical text is not just understanding the original version, which I don't think actually existed in most, most cases, uh, or some sort of original context, which, again, I don't think really ever existed, um, or understanding its, its true meaning or something as an ancient text, uh, which, again, I think is, uh, I mean, texts always can mean lots of different things, even to the person who wrote them, um, but so uh, I think instead of looking for this kind of moment of true origin or true home or something like that, true meaning. uh, If we instead accept that change is just a part of these things, uh, that they are going to change uh, over time. Um, So, you know, most Americans have have come into contact with biblical texts, not in their Hebrew or Greek forms, but in terms of the King James version of the Bible, right? I mean, so this... um, changing of the Bible always happens, right? Uh, every context is going to have its own way of interacting with the Bible, and the Bible's potentials will uh, change based on uh, the potentials of the people who are reading it. Um, so uh, the political configurations and things. But also, there are certain places that people just aren't going to come into contact with the Bible. Uh, so in other words, um, you know, if I'm looking uh, in in history and so on, and I'm kind of uh, thinking about, um, say, I don't know, uh, uh, people in Guangzhou, China, in... Um, Uh, the 6th century BCE, uh, you know, I'm not going to come into contact with biblical texts. Um, but you know, by the t- by the 12th or 13th century, I actually will. Uh, you know, at least there is some uh, um, some you know his- historical uh, documentation that there were uh, local uh, uh, what we would call today sort of Nestorian Christians in the area. Um, but so uh, there are certain places and times where I'm going, people are going to interact with the Bible, and there are certain places and times where they're not. And that's kind of like this nomadic uh, sense that you know you're not going to find Bedouins um, you know wandering around South America you know in a circular in a certain pattern. You're going to find them in areas that, where they where they work uh, well, and they 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 kind of flourish. Um, and uh, uh, so, in any event, uh, this idea that the there are certain places where, where the Bible does certain things, I think it, it works as well.
0: So, let, let's say I can see that you've you know, you've know done a demolition job on how I understand uh, the, the significance of the historical context. So, if my challenge is not to get my students, help my students understand what Isaiah originally meant in his context, what is it that I'm trying to do in my class on Isaiah, what, what would you propose?
1: Well, I think here we've got, um, this, this, uh, one of the things I, I say in the book and, I, and has been, I think this is hard to enunciate or communicate well, or maybe I just haven't figured out how to do that yet. But one of the things I say a couple of times is I'm a, I'm a textualist. Like i I study texts. That's what I, you know, I think we all have a perspective that we're looking from and, my perspective is that, um, you know, I I I am looking at the tech the tech, the the protagonist of my story here um, is the biblical texts, right? So, um, and in a broad sense, and so on, biblical texts. Uh, that's what I, that's my field of study. Um, other folks, I think, would would think of themselves more as historians. Um, and that they're looking at a particular time and place. Um, and so, uh, if you're, if you, if you want people to understand, um, you know, Iron Age, uh, Judah or, uh, Persian period Yehud or, uh, you know, Hellenistic, uh, Jerusalem, like, you know, there, 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 are, there are other ways I'd go about thinking about this, you know, but I would still ask the question, how is, how are these biblical texts functioning in this period or how do I presume that they were in the process of formation in these places and times? Um, but you'd have a different, Point of view, you'd have a different perspective, different questions that you'd be asking. Uh, you would be asking how does this how does this text work here and now? Um, and so, the pluriformity of the text would be interesting in some periods, would be less interesting in some periods. If you're a historian of uh, medieval rabbinic Judaism, um, you know you may be a little bit less interested in, say, the Septuagint. Right. Uh, so um, I, I think different points of view will constrict or expand uh, uh, one's field of study. So if you're a biblical scholar um, and if you're if you call yourself a biblical scholar and you're interested in sort of studying the biblical text, then I think it behooves us um, to look at the biblical text in all of its forms instead of artificially reducing it. Um, and to take seriously that that uh, one of the things we do is try to um, explain the biblical text. uh and that includes all these different versions and times and places and so on, because there's no real ending point um, to our uh, to our point of view. So, if you're trying to teach a class about Isaiah, my question to you would be: uh, What are your goals? Um, you know, what what are your uh, what, what what is your discipline? What are your goals? What do you want your students to to do? Um, what's what do you how do you want them to engage the text? How do you want them to conceptualize the text? Um, is the text the center of what you're trying to to, to to get them to understand, or are you trying to get them to understand the politics of uh, um, the Levant and the Iron Age? Uh, if so, then you know there's going to be a particular way you're going to use biblical scholar tools um, like redaction criticism and so on uh, to try to understand what's happening. Um, so the question that, I, that that I would say is. You know, we we as biblical scholars for a long time have understood that there's a certain amount of stuff you're supposed to teach people. Um, you know, introduction, you know, I like to, right? But we, we know what you're supposed to get um, first, and then there you can add some kind of sprinkle in some stuff um, afterwards based on your own particular identity as a, you know, a Christian or Jew or, you know, whatever, um, or or a secular scholar or whatever. You know, uh, uh, so there's kind of other stuff you can add and, and uh, enrich the kind of uh, basic model of, of knowledge. But if you're teaching a particular group of students, then I think the question is, um, what do you want to actually know and do? And there, maybe you know. I, I always, you know. So as a teacher, I teach at a, a Christian seminary. I teach at Columbia Theological Seminary, a, a, a Presbyterian mainline seminary. Um, I myself an Episcopalian, uh, so you know, similar, a little bit of difference there. But, um, but so in my um, teaching, I know that my students are going to go out and be. They're, they're most of them many of them are going to be uh, ministers of some kind and working in church communities um so that's going to influence um the way that i teach and i do a lot of the kind of old old school uh reaction criticism if you ask my students what i talk most about they may say form criticism um you know trying try to get them to think about genre and so on um but i spend a lot of time on the ancient context of uh, iron age persian period Hellenistic period and so on um in part because the for my context, my teaching, the thing I I have to deal with is that most of my students come to me thinking that the biblical text is um, almost like a magic text that uh, is speaking to them in their personal lives uh, in a very direct and unmediated way, um, and what I want to do is defamiliarize them, uh, and the easiest and simplest way to do that is to get them to realize that this text makes a whole lot of different sense in the In the ancient context, Um, so if I help them to see how Genesis uh, might have worked, say in an Iron Age setting, uh, and then parts of it in a Persian period setting, and so on, you know, kind of uh, draw it out, um, then uh, that that tends to be fairly convincing to most students. That, uh, but from there, the question is, and this I still haven't worked out very well. How do I help them to then? also move on and study uh, later time periods and think about how the biblical text might be working um, in other places and times. Uh, and of course, from our own religious standpoint, um, how might the text be working today in, in, in communities of faith? Um, so this is, I think, the big ethical question. For
0: yeah, the and, I, and I was going to ask that, actually, um, in, in terms of ethics. I could imagine one of the pushbacks on your proposal being that there's a concern for history precisely to preserve the distinct uh, otherness of the text that it has its own mm-hmm. voice, it has its own um, integrity, um, and to to limit the degree to which we we're imposing our values and our ideas, uh, et cetera, on the text. So there's a kind of concern for cultural respect that that might, um, at its best, drive uh, the historical critical project.
1: Um, right. Oh yeah, I totally agree And, and that, I yeah. saw
0: what I saw in your work though was a uh, was another. Um, Kind of cultural respect at work, and that's a desire to validate different interpretations throughout history, and so not to see twenty five hundred years of biblical interpretation as more or less wrong because they weren't aware of, um, you know, such and such Ugaritic
1: parallel. Or or because they happen to be writing from a community that is, like, no longer powerful today. You know, so uh, the Samaritan Pentateuch, you know, is not a powerful document in the sense that uh, it has a large religious community advocating for it and paying for people to study it and so on. Um, but that's a real group of people still, even today, a small one, but nonetheless a real group of folk. Um, and this is their text, and it's, you know, it's a biblical text. I mean, you know, it may not be the biblical text for a lot of people today in, the, in a functioning religious communities. But you know for us as we're trying to be in some sense critical uh, you know scholars and 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 realize our biases, but also in some ways bracket them um, uh, in our presuppositions, our convictions, and so on in some ways bracket them to try to see outside them I mean that 's you know uh, impossible to do always in practice, but we're trying to do that um, uh, and 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 listen to people who are different and try to understand the differences and so on uh, and so for us to say like well the Samaritan is basically. Helpful to us insofar as it can help us reconstruct the original biblical text. Um, that's got all sorts of biases that that underpin it, and um, and there is an ethical dimension to that. Um, I, you know, I end the book by um, uh, talking about uses of of the text of Job nineteen twenty five to twenty seven, uh, which. Is generally translated, you know, for I know my Redeemer lives, the last to spend, stand upon the earth. Um, thinking about uh, uh, Leopold Zunz, uh, a, uh, a, a Jewish uh, historian, um, you know, one of the, the founders of B'nai uh, Judentum so this uh, you know kind of movement to uh, re-read Jewish history not from Christian eyes but from Jewish perspectives and rewrite the histories of people uh, who had been called heretics and, and killed or you know whatever people who uh, were, were, were basically murdered um, and uh, 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 systematically executed uh, for being. Jewish. Uh, and all those histories have been written from a Christian point of view. Uh, in other words, the Jews were committing some sort of uh, blood um, uh, idolatry and so on, and uh, 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 blood libel. And so, you know, so uh, uh, They were hurting the, the Eucharist, uh, and so we killed them. Uh, rewriting those from a Jewish perspective means reclaiming the past from the eyes of someone else. Uh, and uh, and Leopold uses uh, Job 19, uh, 26 um, uh, really as a, as a, as a calling, cry, you know, like uh, this idea that like, you know, we are the witnesses um, who will stand upon the dust of history. Uh, the, the the mounds of the burial mounds of those who have been run over by history and run over by particular people in history and, in, in his mind in, in his experience um, uh, the, uh, the Christian uh, Christendom basically uh, in the Middle Ages had, had uh, dominated uh, Judaism and, uh, and and so rereading texts you, you and you end up being a, a, a goel from Zunza's point of view a, a redeemer uh, of of the past and of people's lives in the past uh, when you retell their story and so in a way you go back and you look at how people had biblical texts and use them and They've been categorized as, um, you know, sort of uh, um, marginal communities and so on. Um, You can give them uh, uh, sort of honor and um, and uh, uh, redemption in a way um, by by rereading their histories and taking them seriously. So in any event, I think that's part of reception history is to find these communities that have been. I mean, it's not like I won't read Augustine or something, but you know, people know Augustine pretty well. I won't spend that much time uh, telling people what Augustine said uh, uh, in my in my work. Usually, I'll try to find um, sort of maybe interesting or uh, uh, expressive or um, uh, unfamiliar points of view uh, that help uh, set these texts in different light uh, or show different potentials or different, you know, powers of these texts uh, that we didn't know they had, we being uh, traditional, the the sort of, uh, uh, sort of, traditional biblical scholars, uh, you know, uh, with uh, most of us, um, you know, academic positions and so on, um, that, that, that we, we we have kind of a limited point of view in some ways.
0: Yeah, and I think you did a beautiful job of that with Job 19, 25 to 27. So um, I think we're about out of time, Brennan, but I just want to really thank you for the discussion today. And thank you for writing such a, a stimulating uh, book. And I, and I think that not only have you provided us with uh, a kind of new theory of reception uh, history, uh, but also um, demonstrated that it actually uh, helps us uncover the capacities of the text, which is just brilliant. So thank you.
1: Well, th- thanks very much, Matt, for taking the time to actually read through it. Um, I'm sure it's not terribly easy to read, but I'm just very happy that at least I know you have read it. One person has read it in um, uh, my committee. Um, but in any event, uh, thanks for the time, and I really appreciate it.
0: You've been listening to on- an OnScript interview with Brennan Breed about his book, Nomadic Text, A Theory of Biblical Reception History, published by Indiana University Press. Visit our website, onscript.study, for more information on the book.
1: You've been listening to OnScript, conversations on current biblical scholarship.
0: Until next time, visit us at our site, onscript.study.